All right. Hey, um, just a quick kind of fun question. How many, anybody in here named Michael? Any, any Michaels in the room? Got a few Michaels. Uh, my middle name is Michael. We just sang a song a minute ago with the phrase, who is like the Lord our God, which would be a pretty good English translation of the, word, of the Hebrew word Michael, Michael, they, the, who is like our God. And so I love the fact that, that a lot of our names and the way we connect to those names can be through this kind of uh, really cool biblical lens to see what's really there. The reason I, one of the reasons I want to comment on that is as we're going through this letter uh, that we call First Peter, Peter's first letter, as far as we know, and as we look at this to recognize one of Peter's points that he's making over and over again is that being a follower of Christ is a full life thing. It's, it's not something segregated out in different ways. It's not that, that you've got the Christian life on Sunday morning and then some different kind of life the rest of the week, or some type of Christian life at home, but a different type of life at work. Or it, it, it is that the Christian life, what it means to follow Christ, should be integrated deeply into every aspect of our lives. The way we, every single interaction that any human being has with any of us who are followers of Christ should be primarily defined by the fact that we are followers of Christ. That should dictate every aspect of the interaction. Um, before, um, before we got started this morning, John just got back from vacation, uh, Redford did, and he was telling us a story about uh, when he was in, and driving with a driver in Jamaica, and as they're driving down the, down the road, this guy apparently, um, he has an, a, an, a ready answer for the questions that he's given that allows him to point people to Christ. And we ought to have the same thing. Whatever our career path is, whatever our hobbies are, whatever, it just struck me that what a great idea it is to have an immediate, easy answer that points people to Christ with the questions that we get over and over again. So, for example, as they're driving, John said they commented on how beautiful the scenery was. Wow, this place is so beautiful. And that the guy's answer was, yeah, it's so beautiful, but just wait till you see heaven. And, it was, and then the whole conversation turns into, how do you get to see heaven? That type of thing. What a great idea. So whatever it is in your life, your relationship, that, that should certainly indi- uh, be indicated in the relationships to our children and other people's children that we're quick to reference, to point them to Christ. But in every interaction, whether we're serving somebody or they're serving us, whether it's a friendship or coworkers or whatever, that our quick response is to point people to Christ um, and, and so you'll know, that's not less needed in church work. Um, it's even easier, I think, sometimes for us <coughs> to think in terms of any of other answers other than Christ. Because it's kind of like, well, I mean, sure, Jesus. But, and that's, I think that's sometimes easy for us, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, there's a little bit of a default there. So just as a good, a good reminder to us, and I think this fits very naturally. I'm going to read this section that we're looking at again in First Peter, and I want you to notice how much Peter assumes that every aspect of your life is defined by your relationship with Christ. Ready? So we're starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Command number one in the letter from, first, uh, from Peter, uh, command number one is set your hope fully okay, on the grace. As, as obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, also be holy in all of your conduct. <coughs> Since it is written, 
you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each man's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now you saw from that passage that we're about to talk about fear and, we're, and conducting oneself in fear. So last week we talked about how this idea is linked to the idea of calling God Father. And I do think that's obviously very important. I think the kind of fear needs to be clarified. And part of that is in Greek, that, that word phobos, the, the where we get the word fear or phobia um, in English, it's the word that's there. And so the author is responsible to tell you what kind of fear you need to be having. And I think Peter is making it very clear to us that this is meant to be the fear of a loving father. Now, <coughs> some of you <coughs> don't have loving fathers on earth. You don't have good fathers on earth. And so the intuition of this is much more difficult. Your natural instinct is to think that God is impatient like your father was. Or, your, your, or God is angry all the time like your father was. Or that he's um, self-absorbed or absent or abusive like your father was. And, and I think what's meant to be clear here is, you know, the type of fear we're supposed to have when we get here in a second, the type of fear we're supposed to have for God is the type of fear that you would have of a healthy, loving father. We talked, again, we unpacked that last week and go back and hear much more detail about it. But I do think this is something that we, that we need to identify with. I mentioned last time, I mentioned last week the idea of of the, of the school calling home or, or saying to me when I'm in trouble, when I was in trouble, and this happened more than once, of being offered the option of do you want pops or do you want us to call your dad? And, uh, and every time I chose pops, I did not want them to call my dad. Um, and it was because I, I was afraid of my dad in this sense. So there comes a moment when children, especially sons, test, begin to test dad, okay? And you ever, they, start, they start pushing they start running these, so they, they, for the first time, there comes a point when they want to race dad, right? I'm going to race you to that spot, right? And so, and so dad is almost always, the first time that happens, the kid is going to learn like how outclassed they are by dad, who they think of as this old, falling apart person, but when he needs to, he can turn on the speed, especially to show his child that he's still faster than they are, Right? Recently, Michael, uh, my Michael, wanted to arm wrestle. I don't know exactly where he discovered arm wrestling, but he wanted to arm wrestle. And so he's like, because he thought he could take me. He's like, I think I can take you. I think I can get you, right? And so, of course, he's, he's little enough that I can essentially curl his entire weight. And so he doesn't realize that. Like, he's not going like, oh, I, I think I can get him. Not realizing someday, yes, he will be able to beat me in arm wrestling. That day is not today. And so for him to discover that is like, Oh, wow, there's this, he, you know, his first introduction to old man strength, which is that weird thing that many of us know about, like that when, when the old guy turns it on, suddenly it's like, oh, wow, who, wow, okay, so who knew that? So this is something that we run into, but here's what's wild. The fact that, that Michael or that our kids would realize, okay, my dad is that much exponentially stronger than I am, isn't scary. 
Why not? I mean, the realization, I live with a guy who could break me in half, should be scary, right? But it's not, because you know that that same strength is on your side. That same strength is meant for to protect you. Now, you also fear it because you know that some percentage, some portion of that strength might be used to discipline you. It's the idea that, as David writes in the psalm, that though I know my shepherd carries the rod and the staff, they comfort me. The very things that the shepherd might use to, at most, discipline me, but primarily to fight off enemies, it comforts me that he has them. Could he use those to break me? I mean, he could, but he won't. This is, this is a vital picture of the understanding that we are not children of wrath. When we are his children, we may be experiencing his discipline, but we don't experience his destructive outpouring of wrath that's reserved for his enemies. That picture is so important as we understand the idea of loving, of, of being the learning to fear a loving father. Now, here's the other part. It's linked to him being called father, and it's also linked to him being called judge. So we're going to look at some insight here into God's idea of justice and judgment. Um, in recent decades, several social leaders, um, if you keep track of this kind of stuff, have created several movements and theories and organizations in an effort to seek justice. But what they're doing very often is taking the human wisdom and redefining justice, redefining it into something different than what it's always meant. In fact, there's been a great deal of controversy about these concepts in many ways in our nation and our culture, and our nation and our culture are being divided on these terms. Now, this sermon was actually written like three weeks ago, mostly written three weeks ago, before I knew that the Southern Baptist Convention is right now facing crisis on some of these very same questions. I, I don't keep that close a track of the Southern Baptist Convention. I will just confess to you right now. And so what they're doing isn't vital to the ministry of the gospel here. And so I, I don't, it's not something I say a lot of focus on, but when someone said, did you hear about the, the turmoil going on? I think it was Brynn who asked, like, did you hear about this? And, and I was like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I got nothing. And so looking it up and realizing these are things that are, this is a dividing concept which is wild to me that it is, especially among Christians, when you have something like First Peter. We're looking at today not because there's a crisis in the culture. We're not looking at it because apparently there's some kind of crisis in the Southern Baptist Convention. We're looking at it because somewhere around 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to put it in a letter, and we are just getting to it today. That's why we're looking at it today. So it's important. God gives a special insight into himself and how he defines justice. What he means when he says judgment. This week, Jim Dennison referenced how significant the significance of Jesus is Lord and the biblical definitions of morality that spring from that are more important than ever. More and more often in today's world, Christ American Christian pastors especially are having to learn to preach the way Jesus did, which was this, you have heard it said, but I say, and this is because the way Jesus taught all the time, because at his time, there was a twisting going on of the ethic that God had laid down thousands of years before, and we're seeing it again. Maybe it's always going on. Maybe that's never changed. This is just my window to be engaged with it and to realize how much it's there. So here's his version. This is a God who, quote, judges impartially according to each one's deeds. There you go. 
Here is God's definition of just judgment. It's laid right here, laid down right here for us in black and white. How does God judge? How will God judge? What does He consider justice? Well, the first part of it is judging impartially. Impartially means there's no way to weasel out of it, is essentially what it means. You're not getting away from it. There's no partiality. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing about you. There's nothing that you have that can buy off God as judge. There's nothing he's going to look at at you and say, "Mm, no, I'm going to cut you some slack because you're white. Or I'm going to cut you some slack because you're white and you're not going to white your way out of his justice. And you're not going to black your way out of his justice. You're not going to Hebrew or Greek your way out of his justice. You're not going to male or female your way out of his justice. You're not getting out of his justice. His justice is impartial. You're not going to rich or poor your way out. You're not going to church membership your way out. You're certainly not going to party membership your way out. This is a God who judges impartially. He's not interested. The, another word for impartial is disinterested. When, I, when you bring this to me, hey, I've got some money for you, don't care. He's not interested. There's nothing we can bring to the table outside of our deeds. I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. But this is God's model of justice. He judges each one impartially based on our deeds. And remember, cool thing, God also judges our heart's deeds, the deeds of our heart, the deeds of our mind, of our soul, the deeds that other people can't see. He sees, He registers, and He judges based on those. It's one of the things that's difficult for us sometimes when we're reading through because we don't emphasize a lot in America the deeds of the heart. And so we get confused when Jesus references things like, you've lusted in your heart. And we go, what, how do we define that? How do we know what lust is? What does he mean there? Well, I can tell you where the deciding factor is. It's when you've made a decision in your heart. So to notice someone's attractive or to be interested, to be like, man, he's hot, or man, she's cute, like, that's, that's not a deed of the heart. It's when you then do something with that information and you make a decision to engage in that, even mentally, that is now a deed of the mind or of the heart or of the soul, and God judges those as well. It's why Jesus says he's not impressed by the fact that we've not committed murder when we wish we could commit murder. That when in our hearts we've committed murder, he's going, hmm, you see, here's the deal, I saw that. See, I judge that too. That's a deed of the heart. And you're responsible for the deeds of the heart, the deeds, your deeds, your personal deeds. Christian understanding of justice is rooted in God's impartiality. And we attempt to follow that example. There's an example that has been rightly drawn attention to recently, and I'll reference it as an example that I think is worth mentioning to help explain this. The injustice that sparked the massacre in Tulsa a hundred years ago was as simple as this. Apparently, a black man was found guilty of a crime with no evidence that he committed it. None. And so a crowd of people decided to find him guilty of this crime despite the fact that he probably does not, there's no evidence that he had committed this crime. He was found guilty because he was a black man. He was judged partially. So in other words, it was decided, we're taking this factor into, not his deeds, the color of his skin, into account. That isn't the way God judges. See, that's why throughout history, even before, 
the Greeks, the Hebrews, they understood the idea that justice was impartial, and therefore statues of justice always have a blindfold. Justice is blind. It does not see. It is impartial. It doesn't care what else you have going for you. It just needs to know how your deeds weigh out. That's all that justice needs. What makes it injustice in this case, and by the way, in response to this man being found guilty, which was unjust, justice doesn't need to be redefined, it just needs to be correctly applied. The unjust decision to find this person guilty of a crime, which they had almost certainly not committed, and then to firebomb an entire community because they were the same color as the man who had been found unjust, that is horrific and it's unjust. That's the problem. The problem is now the answer we're being told to injustice is that we need to let justice peak a little bit. That we need to let justice start looking to see what's, no, no, I need to be partial now. It's time for justice to become partial. That wasn't the problem. The problem was injustice, not justice. That what needs to be fixed is the injustice. And by the way, I just found out uh, Alan Pig, who's an attorney in town, I did not know this, brought to my attention what some of you may know, is that Smith County is famous for something with this. Anybody know what it is? The statue of justice in the Smith County Courthouse does not have a blindfold. And that may have been intentional. When it was put in place, one theory is that, and by the way, it faces north with its eyes wide open in an effort to see Yankees coming. That was the legend. And to chase them off. Now, I don't know if that's what it is. No one knows to this day why it's there. That, that is embarrassing to me. That we would have a statue of justice without a blindfold. There should never be a statue of justice without a blindfold. But it goes to show that taking the blindfold off of justice will not solve injustice. That's exactly what caused injustice in the first place, including in Smith County. What an what a, what a embarrassing turn of events to get to find that out, right? The problem isn't that blind, impartial, unbiased justice is an error unless you want to claim that God's way of doing justice is an error. It isn't. No, the problem is injustice. God's justice is offended by things like this. And this is how we know where to stand. A society made up of individuals who are devoted to God's definition of justice will be a more just society as well. At the social level, that's the only way to get to justice for each and every person. Social responsibility is an important heading under justice, but it is being misdefined by the world again. But it's defined for us in the Bible, for the Christian. Social justice is found for us in passages like this. 1 John three sixteen and 17. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, there's a deed of the heart, how does God's love abide in him? See, John feels comfortable questioning our very faith. If we close our heart to a brother who has a need, and we could provide for it, and we don't. That level of injustice causes John to say, I'm not sure you actually know the love of God. This is as confrontational passage as appears anywhere in the Bible right here. The idea that having more makes you criminal is a worldly idea. The idea that having more makes you responsible is the biblical idea. Responsible to God for what we do with what he has given us. That's the biblical picture that we're given. 
Jesus says it too in Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We pray for justice at the societal level. We should always pray that. But we're not going to achieve it by some man-made effort. Only under a true definition of justice, which likes God's judgment, is impartial. Does tolerance have a place in the Christian ethic? Of course it does. But only, as we talked about last week, but only under the powerful virtues of love and truth. The divine path is impartial justice, love, and sacrifice. You remember a few weeks ago, Paul referenced his kids um, being offered a nickel and a dime, and they chose the nickel because it's bigger. Or being offered six pennies or a quarter, and they chose the pennies because there's more of them. That's the same thing as the church choosing tolerance. For us to go, yeah, we want to be tolerant. Well, I mean, you could have the quarter, you could have loving, you could have hospitality, you could have sacrifice. Those are the silver dollars. Tolerance is just the pennies. We want something bigger than that and grander than that for the local church and for our church, that we would say, um, we want more than that. Leave tolerance to the scrubs. It's just a nickel. We get to love. We can be hospitable, not merely tolerant. That's just a few pennies. We can sacrifice, not merely protest. Jesus calls us to a higher death, and Peter says we should be living in it, in his way, all the time. After all, given the nature of God as Father, given the nature of God as an impartial judge, given all that we've learned so far, we should recognize we have a problem. So here's the question that struck me this morning. If I'm going to go into a justice system situation, I have, many of you probably have in different ways, you go into a justice system situation, you've really only got two questions. The first question is, is the judge just? If you were going into a courtroom situation and you knew with 100% certainty that this judge always gets it right, always gets it right, so you knew that, then there's only one other question you should be worried about, and that's what? Yeah, how am I guilty? Because if you're guilty and he's always right, guess what's about to happen, right? Something funny is about to happen. You're about to find yourself on the wrong end of the courts. It's the same thing back to the dad. If you have a dad who's loving and always gets it right, and you're wrong, you've done something wrong, when you go to him, there's only two problems that you've got to ask. Is he just and loving? If he is, then the only other question is, am I guilty? And if I am, I should live in fear. Because an impartial judge and a loving father are going to not let that slide. And you go, but that sounds hopeless. It does sound hopeless, doesn't it? I'm I'm someday I'm going to stand before a judge, and he's perfect, and I'm guilty. The end. If that was the end of the story, but luckily Peter didn't want us to get there. And if you're feeling a sense of dread from that, it's because you forgot what he told us in commandment number one. If only there was something I could set my hope on in that moment, huh? If only there's something that in that moment when I'm facing this perfect judge and I'm guilty, and I'm facing this, facing this perfect father and I'm guilty, if there's only something that I could fully place my hope on, oh yeah, the grace that Jesus Christ has purchased for me. I can set my hope fully on there because that's the only hope I've got. It's, it's, that's not, none of this is unintentional. This is laid out here for us. So we set our hope fully on His grace, commandment number one, live as holy people, and then we get to commandment number three right here, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. <clears throat> so, uh, 
this is another little segue that I've got to touch on, and it, I probably wouldn't have, but I just a couple of weeks ago I preached at Frisco Bible on the question, is the church phobic? Um, and, and so this is, this is what the concept was. The idea, and I'm shortening it, that was a 40-minute sermon plus, and so to real quickly just kind of unpack that, which you could go to, you can go to Frisco's, Frisco Bible Church's website and watch this whole series of apologetics they're doing, which is really good. Um, and so, so whichever safety net is being dismantled, I want you to imagine that the Judeo-Christian teaching, the teaching from God through Scripture is like a fireplace, and God says, hey, I've given you fire, it's a good gift, but be careful, if it gets out of hand, it'll ruin your life. So make sure and keep it in this fireplace that I've built for it. I built a fireplace, keep it in there. I'm defining these terms for you. This is what justice means. This is what love means. This is what sex is for, etc. This is what marriage is. I'm defining these terms. I'm building a fireplace. Keep the fire in there. And time after time, human beings have come along and said like, no, see, I think it's better out here. I think having the fire just spread everywhere is healthier, better. It's more free that way, right? Because freedom is found in just letting dangerous things loose in society. That's where we find freedom. So this idea of saying that's what we want to do, and the question is when we go, no, oh, see, no, it's better in the fireplace, well, that's because we're phobic. It's because the church is hateful. That's the message. So you're not letting me take the fire out of the fireplace is because you're hateful. You saying that I'm, even you just letting me do it, but then saying it's dumb to do it is hateful. It's dangerous. There's something wrong with you, and I think that's the message that we get. Every time a safety net is dismantled and we try to defend the importance of it, to point out the madness of dismantling it, we are labeled phobic. And by phobic, I actually think the word means, I think what is meant is hateful. I don't think they're worried about us being afraid. I think they're worried about us being hateful. So this word phobic, this word fear that we've looked at, are we phobic? Is Christianity phobic? Are we homophobic? Are we transphobic? Are we whatever the phobia of the week is, whatever phobic it is? Do we treat homosexuality, for example, as, as though it's the one big unforgivable sin? People say we do. Do we? I'm curious about that. It's, it's really intriguing to me that I have, these, have to have these conversations where someone comes to me and says, hey, what you've taught and your forebears taught and your, their forebears, what's been taught in Judeo-Christian teaching now for 4,000 years is wrong. That's how the conversation begins. What you've been saying about this for 4,000 years is wrong. And I say, or we say, hmm, no, I think it's right. And their answer is, why are you always talking about this? You're so hateful. You're so phobic. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't bring this up. I didn't want to talk about this. I'd rather talk about the atonement or something. Like, could we talk about the atonement? I'd much rather talk about that than this. I'm not the one who keeps bringing up whatever's being, whatever new thing is being dismantled. But then the, 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 the claim is made that we treat this sin, in this case maybe homosexuality, as somehow this magical big sin that we're all most concerned about. I don't see it. I, I don't, I'm connected to a lot of churches, and I've not seen it in a single one of them. Let me ask, for example, do you think that when this question is begged, and it is begging the question as a church, do we emphasize the difference of the sin? We don't. We emphasize the difference between embracing sin or confessing sin. We emphasize that difference. What makes us different from one another in our roles in the church isn't whether we're sinful. That unites us, every one of us. If you're unaware of this, I'm sorry to break you, burst your bubble, or whatever. That's not what makes anybody special in a church, is that they sin or don't sin. No, we, we are all sinful. We're all infected by it. The question is, how do we engage with it? Do we embrace it? Like, this is my new hobby, you know? This is my, this sin is my, this is just what I do. 
This is, my, this is what I do for fun. This is what, I'm just embracing it. This is my lifestyle. This is my choice. This is just the way I see the world. You know, whatever. That's embracing sin versus confessing sin. I know I do this. It's awful. I really don't want to do this. I, keep, I, do, I do it, but I don't want to do it. It's what the Apostle Paul goes through all through Romans 6 and 7, that this is the battle that we're having. That's what makes it different. Are we confessing sin or are we embracing sin? Listen, if you embrace sin, we hope you're here and we hope you stay here. We love having you at this church, even if you just openly embrace sin in your life. But we're not going to let you teach a class, right? We're not going to put you in leadership. That's for the people who are confessing sin. Not, and again, it's not for the people who don't have sin. We don't have any of those. I've checked. What we have is people who confess it and are fighting it and are engaging in this battle. And those, those are the people we want leading and teaching the rest of us. Then we have people who embrace sin, and we're glad you're here, and we hope you can learn and grow. That's our hope for you. We don't say, oh, listen, this person's failure with pornography is different than somebody else's because this is heterosexual pornography, and that's homosexual pornography. Anybody ever seen that happen in a church? I haven't. Oh, this, there's been an affair. There's been infidelity. Well, this person's infidelity is better because it's heterosexual, and this person's infidelity is worse and it's because it's homosexual. Do we do that? I haven't seen it. I've never seen it. The question is, do you confess this sin or do you embrace this sin? That's the question. And if you, if you're, how are you engaging with it? That's what matters. Do we hate and fear someone because we, do we hate them because we say they're wrong? Is that why the church is labeled hateful or phobic? I don't think so. I think Peter has drawn attention to the real reason. We're not despised because we are multiphobic. What makes us so despicable is that we are monophobic. The problem is what Peter just said that we are to live, conduct ourselves in fear of only one person, of only one situation, of only one source. Deuteronomy 6.13 says this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. Some translations emphasize the focus of it. It is only the Lord your God you shall fear. Peter and Paul says the same thing, something similar in 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 11. Notice how he links it to judgment, just like Peter did. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, good or evil, the deeds. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. This is why we can't ever dim the lights in the church metaphorically. We can't teach things that are more comfortable just because it makes us more comfortable, and certainly not because it makes lost people more comfortable. The idea is we teach the truth, and it's probably going to make all of us uncomfortable. Not intentionally, it just is. There's a, there's a higher, you realize we were called in this passage to be holy because he's holy. Anybody else uncomfortable with that? I am. That's tough. That's a tough thought. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to be holy in the same way God is holy? That's a crazy concept. That's beyond me. Right, that's why I have the opportunity to set my hope fully on the grace that he's given me, and not just by my merit. See, here's what's wild. I fear human wisdom more than I fear human scorn. I fear human wisdom more than I fear human persecution. And I fear the Lord like a loving father, like a just judge, more than I fear anything humans can do or be. It's, it's not, we're just not trustworthy for this kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of different examples. I teach on this all the time. This is another one of my favorites that you might never have seen. Um, I, you have to do this quickly. Ready? On the count of three, everybody point north. One, two, three, point. Look at all you chickens. People are like, I'm not pointing. I have no idea which way is north. 
You guys are pointing all over the place, by the way. It's great. I'm not seeing but just a few people that seem to be pointing up. See, that only works on a map. That doesn't work like, like oh, oh, oh. That's right. And, yeah, I saw people point every different, and, and most of the people weren't pointing at all. And this is an East Texas crowd, right? If anybody's going to know which way is north, it's going to be this room, right? We're, we're going to have some constant. Remember, our statue points that way, looking out for Yankees. That's the, we're going to know which way that is. And we don't. You do that in a city, by the way, you get every direction. I mean, people are poking each other in the eyes trying to figure out which way is. That's who you're going to trust? That's who you're going to trust? You're going to go like, oh, this is a good compass. It points in random directions. We'll follow that. No, if you're not afraid of following human wisdom, you've not learned enough about human wisdom yet. If it's coming that way. See, here's what's wild. Peter has revealed something very interesting that one of the commentaries drew my attention to. The judge is my father. My father is the judge. This is great comfort and, of course, appropriate fear. The fact that my dad can beat up your dad is a comforting thing. But that also means he can probably take me, right? His rod and staff comfort me. The kind of fear that we talked about, the kind of fear of a just judge. It's not that we go into it fearing injustice. That's terrifying, fearing injustice. If you've ever experienced injustice, it is terrifying. We don't, we don't fear injustice. We don't fear abuse. We have a loving father. We have a just judge. Archbishop Layton once said, the fear of the Lord, I love this, is the fear that drowns out all other fears. That's what makes us a problem. Is that we have a fear that drowns out all other efforts at making us afraid. This is the exile, the sojourn. This is who we are. We are ambassadors. We're strangers in a strange land, just like they were. This is not a fear of abandonment. The reminder is that we as sojourners are not forsaken. We don't languish here like captives or kidnap victims. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal way of life inherited by your former forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, a price had to be paid to reunite you to him, to reunite me to him. What were we redeemed from? What were we ransomed from? There are so many ways to answer this question. There are whole seminary classes that do nothing but answer this question. What were we ransomed from? What have we been redeemed from? And Peter's going to focus on an intriguing one. Well, one of the things we've been ransomed from is the empty, feudal ways of life that we inherited from our forefathers. Paul and I were talking about this, about the challenge this creates for us as teachers. Does he mean his Jewish audience or the, the Jewish aspect of the audience? Because that's going to be... The rabbinical traditions instead of God's law. The obedience to the laws that human beings came up with rather than the laws that are pleasing to God. But it doesn't really seem that he's focusing on a Jewish audience, even though he's using a lot of Jewish language. More of a pagan audience. In which case, their religious practices that had been handed down to them ranged from the ridiculous to the perverse to the wicked. And the right behaviors and incantations and sacrifices would give them some kind of power. They would give them power in the world. So what are ours? What are the empty ways of life handed down to us by our forefathers? I think this is a worthwhile thing for us to wrestle with for a week. A few years ago, um, an author who I, I like, Tim Kimmel, put out a book called Raising Kids for True Greatness. It's my favorite book of his. 
But he talks about the significance of this, that how in the American world and in the American church, we have become, we've begun to idolize this idea of raising children for success. That they make certain grades, that they get a certain education, that they get a certain type of career, a certain paying job, a certain whatever. And the emphasis is on success. We want them to be successful in the world. And he says that often comes in conflict with eternal greatness. And what we should be raising children to do is to be eternally great. That they would be the kind of person that God would make their name great among the nations because of their eternal impact. And yet we trade that in all the time. We make our kids so busy in their effort to achieve success that we forget about greatness. Um, it's, it's a, I'm not picking on one example, although this is a common example we hear about in the church, is that yes, your kid might or might not get a scholarship to college for the sports they play, but they've not been to church in six months. Is that the right trade-off? To say, here's what we need to teach you is that the gathering of the saints, it's okay to forsake that, but missing soccer practice, man, we can never forsake that. Is that the right call? And just pick it, whatever it is in your life. Maybe that's not it in your life, maybe it's something else. But just pick that. What is that that you're saying? Listen, education, it's the most important. I was raised by educators, and it was easy to fall into the idea that education was next to godliness. Or, or if you grew up in, a type, in, a, in an entrepreneurial home or something like that, that you would say, listen, success in a business is next to godliness. None of those are next to godliness. They have to be subverted to godliness. Greatness is, is what we need to be aiming for. And I think one of the things that we've passed down, an empty way of life we sometimes pass down, is that one, is success as Americans. Sometimes we get into that. <clears throat> There's a whole list of burdens given by our parents, sometimes our pastors and our churches, but others who, who claim to be our judges. And remember, we only have one. We'll come back to that next week. And this is, I think, part of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 11. I'm going to wrap up our time today with this. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The, the, the Greek here, by the way, the action verb is rest. I will rest you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Something to consider when you think about this is the idea that we come to Him carrying these burdens, carrying these yokes, wearing these yokes that have been given to us by our society, by our culture, by our whatever, by our parents, by our churches, by who you, you name it. And we come to Him carrying all these, and the first step of sometimes getting His yoke on and carrying His burdens is to let Him strip away all the others, to call them what they are, empty and futile. That there are things that need to be stripped away, tossed on the ground, walked away from, that that's needed. And so that we can then carry the burden that's made for us, we know it is because He's the one who made it for us. And so my challenge, I would say, because we're going to continue to unpack this passage next week, is that this week, take some special time in prayer, solitude, silence, whatever does this for you, and ask, what burdens am I carrying that aren't from Him? What, what yokes am I wearing that He didn't carve for me? So that our hearts are prepared to hear what it's like to be set free from that. So if you will, stand with me and let's pray. Father, one of the coolest things in having a therapeutic role sometimes in people's lives is 
is that moment when people realize there's a burden they're carrying or a yoke they're wearing that you didn't make for them. They've been carrying a yoke that was given to them by someone else, by a boss or a parent or a sibling or a spouse or boyfriend or a girlfriend or a class of fourth graders or a teacher or a coach or a church or a pastor that needs to be thrown out, needs to be let go. And Lord, I I pray that this would be a great week for our people to be asking, what am I carrying that's not from Him? What are the empty and futile ways of life that have been handed down to me by my forefathers? Lord, whether that's the law or legalism, Lord, no matter what it is, you know what it is. Is it some pagan ritual that we think is important? Can't even imagine for each of us, Lord, what all of them that they are. And I pray we will be able to be set free of those and instead that you would rest us by giving us your yoke and your burden, not anybody else's. Thank you, Lord, that you are that kind of a God. Thank you that though you are a just judge who we will face in all of our guilt, you are also the one, the giver of grace and salvation, and we can set our hope fully on your grace in that moment, which is exactly what I plan to do. Thank you, Father, for the truth of that, according to your Son. Amen. During this time of invitation, which is not just tradition, we want you to be able to have a moment to think and pray and listen. And so during this time, um, we would hope that you would be doing that, praying for one another. If you need to go to somebody, do that. Um, And then the hope would be if you need to come pray down here, you can. If you need to pray in the corner with somebody at the prayer um, area, you can do that. Um, Whatever it is that God calls you to do. If you don't know this God, if you've never experienced his adoption and his resting, I hope you will come and let today be the day of salvation. We pray these things for you. John. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day. For by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light, be thou my wisdom. And thou, my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou, my great Father, I, thy true Son, Thou in me dwelling, and I with Thee one.